So welcome back to this podcast series on Lyme disease, Navigating Lyme Disease with Dr. Darren Ingalls. This is part two. If you haven't already listened to part one, episode number 38, please go back and listen to that episode. That will give you a lot more background and information related to Lyme disease, and it'll help you kind of move into this part two or episode number 39, um, Lyme disease. And we're going to talk mainly about treatments today. You can download uh, the PowerPoint that will kind of walk you through everything we're talking about. And I just want to let you know that in that PowerPoint, there is a lot more information about treatment than there is in this podcast. Treatment for Lyme disease could go into literally days of talking about it. Um, And as you've probably learned a little bit in part one is that practitioners, depending on how they're trained, uh, what their school of thought is, they all have different ideas sometimes about how long you have Lyme disease, if chronic Lyme disease even um, exists. And if you live in a country too, where they don't even believe Lyme disease is a condition like Australia, then, you know, finding treatment protocols can be exhausting, can be frustrating, definitely confusing for patients. And so in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the most common treatments that Dr. Ingalls uses and that he's found to, that helped his Lyme disease, as well as he's found in treating hundreds of other Lyme disease patients in his practice, as well as autoimmune patients. Because as we well know uh, Lyme disease causes uh, somewhat of an autoimmune condition within the body. And uh, I I really like this. uh, I really like this podcast because we're not going to get super deep into the protocols and that kind of thing um, because you really do need a physician to help you walk through this. If you do have Lyme disease or let's say you haven't even been diagnosed and um, you need to, you know, you need help with that. Self-diagnosing and self-treating is very difficult with a disease like this. But what I like about his protocols is that he's tried the other stuff and he's had the most improvement himself and in his patients with these protocols, and most of them are herbal. So we talk a lot about herbal medicine, and um, I I think that sometimes because in conventional medicine we have antibiotics and uh, people think that, you know, that is like the best form of medicine, especially in infectious disease. But as we well know, we're starting to have a lot of problems with antibiotics in our community and in our societies and worldwide with antibiotic resistance. And when you start to see vector-borne infectious diseases like this that are uh, not only acute in nature but can also be chronic in nature, is that using antibiotics long-term can be very you know, in a way detrimental to your health. So it's important to work with a physician on these things, but the PowerPoint will help give you a little bit more in depth about the, the different treatments and the good, the bad, the ugly about conventional treatments, um, as well as herbal treatments and some of, some of the different reactions you can have with things, as well as some of the adjunct kind of autoimmune therapies that, that uh, practitioners may be using. Dr. Darren Ingalls does take patients, and he, he, as he says in this podcast, he takes patients from all over the world. Um, he, he can do testing from pretty much anywhere um, based on the labs that he works with, and he can do long-distance um, treatments and stuff with you. And, you know, it may get complicating depending on where you live and access to things. But I would highly recommend if this, these podcasts are resonating with you and you want more help is to contact him at his office going to his website at darreningalesnd.com. There you can find all his practice locations. He has 
two in uh, California and he has one in Connecticut, um, which is helpful because as we know, the Northeast is probably the biggest place in the United States where we see Lyme disease um, contracted. But, um, or you can work with him uh, virtually uh, pretty much from anywhere in the world. You can find the show notes for this podcast, as well as a link to the download at huntharvesthealth.com slash podcast slash Lyme disease two. Let's talk a little bit about treatments. First, I want to talk about the conventional treatments. What What is somebody who has an acute case, they've come in, they're now going to be treated. What, what would they be looking at in a, in a conventional uh, physician? Yeah, conventional so, model, what would uh, they be looking at? The conventional treatment uh, for acute Lyme disease is uh, either using doxycycline or amoxicillin. Uh, typically okay. for adults, it's doxycycline. Uh, and you use it up to the typical dose is uh, 21 days. Uh, what I find very interesting is the, the the CDC recommendations, 21 days of doxycycline. And whether you're well or not at the end of that time period, you're just done. That's just the oh, guideline. Yeah. Uh, I think there have been other doctors, even in the conventional world, that have kind of extended that a little bit longer. So some doctors I see now will extend it to four weeks or even six weeks. Uh, but that, But that's the conventional model. For people that have known... Lyme in the brain. They call it neuroborreliosis. So this is usually done if they do a spinal tap on you and they identify Lyme in your spinal fluid. Then the recommendation is to give you IV antibiotics. Okay. So the, that's sort of the the standard guideline. Uh, and even for pregnant women, you know, there is a recommendation for antibiotics. But again, they kind of cap it off at that three weeks and you know, when you're done, you're done. Can you explain the bit of a difference between the different types of antibiotics they use and what they're doing? Yeah. So, you know, antibiotics are really broken down into two types of categories. There's one that are called bactericidal, which means that these antibiotics directly kill the bug. And the other ones are called bacteriostatic. So they don't kill the bug. What they do is they stop the bug from replicating. And so the concept in those type of drugs is that, you know, it holds it at bay and it gives your immune system the chance to go in there and get rid of it. So amoxicillin is a bacterial It actually it breaks up the cell wall of the bacteria, so it, 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 it kills it directly. Where doxycycline, the more common drug, is a bacteria static. Again, it just keeps the organism from replicating. The challenge in this is that Lyme is a very slow-growing organism. So any antibiotic that's geared at affecting its replication is only going to work when the organism's in its replication cycle. You know, most bacteria replicate every 20 minutes. Lyme can replicate up to every 16 days. So it's wow. very, very slow. And I think that's why we argue that the course of treatment really needs to be much longer because because it is such a slow-growing organism. Wow. Okay. So <clears throat> now they've gotten this round of antibiotics, and then they're done and they're treated. Uh, what if they're not? What if they're still having symptoms? Do they now go into chronic Lyme? Well, what, not- would the treat. What would the treatments? What would a conventional treatment be for chronic Lyme? Well, uh, from a conventional standpoint, there is no treatment. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you go to the CDC's website and if you read what they call now called post-Lyme syndrome, it's basically symptomatic support, but they don't recommend antibiotics. 
Uh, now, there's a group out there called ILADS, the International mm-hmm. Lyme and Associated yeah. Disease Society, that feels very differently. And these doctors will use antibiotics long-term in people who have chronic Lyme or persistent Lyme. So that's where we kind of deviate from the Infectious Disease Society of America. This is the conventional infectious disease doctors that uh, really don't believe in using antibiotics long-term like that. Uh, I would argue... Uh, I'm probably more along that line as well, that my experience for most patients with chronic Lyme is that they might do well on antibiotics temporarily, but when they come off the antibiotics, they often regress and relapse fairly quickly. And my concern with the long-term antibiotics is what it's doing to your own gut flora, mm-hmm. your own microbiome, all of these healthy bacteria we need to function well. You know, you can't kill the bad stuff without killing the good stuff. And as much as we try to support with probiotics and things like that, uh, we're always going to kill off more than we can replenish. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can become a bit of a a problem. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of other alternatives out there to the antibiotics. uh, But from a conventional standpoint, the antibiotics are really only for acute Lyme and uh, pretty much ignored for chronic Lyme. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you would do for treatment if somebody's coming with these 90% of patients who are coming to you with chronic Lyme? Yeah. So, you know, for chronic Lyme, again, you know, my, my observation is, you know, really what the organism has done in triggering this autoimmune reaction in the body. So our goal is really to take the pressure off the immune system and start to quiet that that response down you know autoimmunity if you think about it it's really it's an over response of the immune system your immune system's reacting to something it shouldn't be reacting to so we want to do things to start to retrain the immune system to stop overreacting you know imagine your body's treating lyme like an allergen instead of a pathogen so even if it's there at low levels your immune system's having this over response to it and it's not the antibodies that are directly killing the bug these are the antibodies that are affecting your own tissue so whether it's your gut your joints, your brain, and so forth. So the way that I start is uh, I start really with the fundamental gut stuff, and, you know, and, and that starts with diet. And what I found over the years is that getting people on what we call an alkaline diet, and that means eating foods that help promote better uh, pH balance in your body. So an alkaline pH is also what they call a basic pH. This is a pH higher than 7 And what we know is that your cells function optimally when it's in an alkaline state, with the exception of the stomach, uh, the bladder, and the vaginal area in women that's very acidic. The rest of your body is actually very alkaline. So uh, in a very basic way, uh, I mean, I've got it in my book. We'll talk about it at the end of the podcast. But uh, it's you can kind of think of eating mostly a vegetarian diet uh, with really keeping your meat sources and egg sources down to about 20% 20% of your dietary intake. Mm-hmm. And then there's certain foods we really do try to have you remove just because they promote uh, a lot of acid in the body. So that's dairy products. That pretty much includes all the junk food, processed foods. Uh, it also includes things like coffee. You know, I was I was a big coffee drinker mm-hmm. for years. I love coffee today, but I, I had to quit it because I would find that even small amounts would cause my neuropathy to flare up, uh, even with just a couple of sips, and mm-hmm. it just wasn't worth it. And so, you know, I, I always get this from Lyme patients, you know, who of course hate to change their diet, but you know, well, how much can I have? Can I have just a little bit? Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I mean, everyone I'm sure has a different threshold, but uh, right. for a lot of people, uh, sometimes even a little bit goes a long way. So, you know, kind of being diligent and what you're putting in your mouth can really make a big difference on how well your immune system functions. Right. Well, a big, pl- a big part of our, you know, we started this podcast back in December and we 
we really started just with the health stuff about the gut because foundationally the gut is, is, well, it's the foundation, right? Well, and yep. You know, 80% of your immune system comes from the gut. So if the gut's not functioning well, your immune system's not going to function well. And we learn though, that a lot of people don't understand even what that means. Like, Oh, just heal your gut. And people are like, what? How do I do that? What does that mean? Right. And they may think they're eating fairly healthy. Um, they may not even understand. So there, we've had to do some education and just sharing some information around what it means to have a, a healthy gut and to be, uh, digesting and absorbing your food and um, making sure that you're not having any infection in the gut or you're not having any allergen that's creating, you know, leaky gut um, that and helping to heal that. Because I really think most people who are eating the standard American diet for their whole life and the amount of stress that we live under today, that's different than maybe a hunter-gatherer stress, right? right? So when you're talking to, you know, another big piece of our platform is nature and exposure to nature. And so a lot of people in our um who are listening to us, they have that kind of covered, you know, they, they prefer to be in nature. That's where they feel the best, you know, Um, but they may not be eating as healthy. And so maybe they go to nature and they can keep their stress down, but, oh, you know, but they're still eating processed foods and they're doing that. Or maybe they're eating really healthy meat, right? They're eating healthy game, but they're not eating enough vegetables and they're not getting hydrated enough and they're not having enough fiber, healthy fibers in their diet. And so really getting people to understand that what that means, having a foundationally healthy gut. And I think it just comes down to the the basics is really having that more hunter gatherer diet right. um where you're eating lean protein with more of the fibers and vegetables and um densely nutrient foods right yeah and you know and i think it's interesting when i look at you know meat as a whole and you look at what it does to body ph and and the truth is i don't know the answer to this question but i think we're we're looking at, you know, conventionally raised animals. And I don't know that we can compare that with wild game. You know, I mean, you know, deer and elk and, you know, animals that are out foraging on their own. They're not in a pen. They're not force fed. I mean, I think, you know, the the chemical composition is very different. Uh, But, you know, I've never really seen a comparison of, you know, wild game to, you know, conventionally raised. I imagine it probably is different though. Yeah. And I mean, it's a higher essential fatty acid and a lower saturated fat. And, and, um, but it still is a meat and it's a protein. And again, you know, you have to be able to break that down to get your amino acids again you know that whole process starting in the stomach and not having enough hydrochloric acid right which in turn hydrochloric acid kills things that's the whole point of it right it's to break stuff down it's also to kill the bacteria to kill the fungus to kill the viruses that are going into our body right um when we touch our face and we lick our fingers and we eat our food and that's why we don't get food poisoning every single time we eat right because Really, our stomach acid is that first line of defense. Right. And that, we found so many people, right, are taking acid blockers. <laughs> and so many people, that first barrier of defense is already shot. Right. And so um, their gut, you know, getting deeper into the gut is getting more destroyed. From yeah. not, and, and they're not absorbing and breaking down what they need. And so I, I think that is almost, an, it seems like every treatment and everything that, that gut health is so important, but also understanding what that means. And then diet is, you can't do it without diet. Yeah. People say, oh, can I just drink a drink? 
Can I just drink a protein? Can I just drink these vitamins? Can I? You can't. And especially if you're on protocols like for the Lyme disease, if maybe you've done the conventional antibiotics, all that, you know, your gut is your microbiome is going to be. Well, and that's it too. I mean, a lot of people I've seen have been on antibiotics and sometimes for years. Well, right. antibiotics are going to make your body very acidic. Right. And so I think, again, that's part of what sort of, you know, uh, contradictory to what we're trying to achieve is that, you know, it's sort of chemically working against you. And uh, in the effort to try and kill the organism, again, how much damage is it doing to your your fundamental physiology? You know, much like kind of taking the acid blockers, right. uh, you know, killing off the microbiome in your gut. You know, these bacteria are there for a purpose. You know, they protect us. They help us digest our food. They protect the gut barrier. Uh, they pr- produce vitamins for bone health exactly. and blood vessel health. And what else? what else would you... Yeah, so after we, you know, get through, you know, the diet piece and looking at some other nutrients that, you know, really help support gut health, and that that's really is kind of individual, whether they're more, you know, constipated, loose stool, you know, we look at their bowel function very well. And then the next step is really I start getting into herbal therapy. You know, herbs can be very effective at killing Lyme, killing co-infection. And in the antibiotic world, you know, you really kind of have to know what you're treating because the antibiotic regimen would change from organism to organism. So the way you treat Lyme might be a little different than Bartonella, which is different than Babesia and so forth. What I like about a lot of the herbal protocols is they, they kind of kill all these organisms. I mean, whether it's Lyme or any of the co-infections or combinations, I mean, I've had good success of using these uh, treatments uh, where you don't necessarily have to tailor you know, one from the other. So it does make it just a little bit more simple for people. And there's several different herbal protocols out there. You know, if you go on the internet and read about it, there's, you know, probably six or seven, you know, pretty well-known herbal treatments. I've really found just from my own experience and treating a lot of patients, there's two protocols I probably follow the most. Uh, the first protocol is uh, a doctor out of New York City. His name is Dr. Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G. Uh, he's a Chinese medical doctor and works as an acupuncturist in New York City. Uh, but when I had Lyme disease and was coming off antibiotics, you know, he's the guy I saw who really kind of pulled me out of the weeds and got me feeling well again. And uh, his is a combination of traditional Chinese herbs. And so it's several different formulas. And, uh, again, I think it would be a little bit uh, complex to uh, uh, try and describe all of them in detail for right. this podcast. But the, the basic uh, summary of what he's trying to accomplish is the herbs really cover a, a broad uh, depth of what Lyme does to the body. So, you know, the infection is really the initial problem, but it's everything else that happens after that. And the way I like to think of it is like, you know, if you're standing on the lake in the morning and it's a nice quiet lake and a motorboat goes blowing by, the boat can be long gone, but there's ripples in the wake, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what Lyme does to the body is it just leaves a wake of destruction in its path. So that's what we're really trying to often, you know, clean up. And so what I like about his herbs is that he does have a couple formulas that really go after Lyme and the co-infection to bring that load of the organism down. But he's got another formula to help boost your own immune system. He's got another formula that's anti-inflammatory. He's got another formula that helps promote circulation. So I think it really encompasses, you know, the breadth of what Lyme's doing to the body. Right, because even antibiotic use, it's it's like it's like having a huge target and just pinpointing one little spot on that target, right? Right. Like, okay, this is the bacteria. We're going to kill it, but we're not going to address anything else that happens in that wake. And the wake is really what's likely doing the most damage. Right. 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 And that's where in it's like, it's, it's so, um, 
it's not looking at whole, the whole picture. It's kind of that one thing. And then people are dealing with like, can you talk a little bit about Herxheimer reactions? And so sure. people who have done treatments may have heard of this. They, um, what this is, Herxheimer. Yeah. So when anytime you start any kind of Lyme treatment, and actually it's not unique to the Lyme, it can be with other types of infections as well, but it's called a Herxheimer reaction, or you read about Herxing, yeah. and what it is is a die-off reaction. So as your immune system is trying to gear up to fight the infection, the infection starts to die off. Um, Part of it's a combination of some of the toxins that can be released from the organism itself as it dies. And the other part is that you sort of get this, you know, burst of what are called cytokines. These are parts of your immune system that are chemicals that go after the organism. But they can make you feel pretty horrible. And uh, herxing is basically flu-like symptoms. So you can feel more tired, more achy, more brain fog, more lethargic. Uh, it tends to be somewhat transient for people. It can last anywhere from a few days, sometimes even up to a couple of weeks. Uh, typically, if it happens, we don't stop treatment. That's a sign that whatever we're doing is actually working. Uh, so we want to kind of keep plowing ahead. And often when people get on the back end of that, they feel remarkably better. Okay, so it's almost like the Lyme, you feel like you have really bad Lyme. It sounds like the Herx is like a, it's accentuating some symptoms really strongly, It often right? is, yeah. Your yeah. symptoms just become, you know, sometimes, you know, <laughs> significantly worse. Um, okay. Depending on the kind of treatment that you're doing. I mean, with antibiotics, Herxing is far more common. With herbal therapy, it can happen. It's less common. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the advantages of herbal therapy as well, is you're just less likely to to experience that. But I have some very sensitive patients, even with very small doses of herbs, they start to Herx. You know, it can happen just depending mm -hmm. on the sensitivity level of the person. But um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So. I think, uh, what would you say to somebody who's listening right now and they're like, oh, great, he's not prescribing antibiotics, he's prescribing herbs. Like herbs don't work, they're not strong enough, they're not pharmaceutical. Like, what would you say to this idea of maybe helping people to understand the power of quote-unquote herbs and what that means? Like, well, I think it's, you could probably start with just understand that a lot of conventional drugs came from herbs. Right. I mean, you know, the, the joxin, which is used for heart, heart disease, you know, came from digitalis. You know, we have a very long history of a lot of uh, chemicals uh, or drugs. I mean, even statin drugs like Lipitor right. came from red yeast rice, came from a food. So, uh, you know, historically, a lot of things that are used in conventional medicine in some way were derived from herbs. Um, and I think, you know, people don't necessarily understand that uh, you know, herbs contain very powerful components that work in a lot of different ways for various illnesses. And in many cases, there's actually a lot of research. So, for example, you know, Dr. Zhang uh, has actually written a book uh, about his herbal formulas and has uh, lots of references on the antimicrobial effects of those herbs. So they've actually been very well studied. And I, I haven't discussed yet another protocol I use uh, from Dr. Cowden, uh, but Dr. Cowden's protocol, which is a series of tinctures, these are liquid extracts, and these herbs all come from the Amazon. Uh, mm -hmm. There's actually a researcher at the University of New Haven named Dr. Eva Sappi, and she's been studying these herbs for some years now, and she actually did head-to-head -head comparisons with doxycycline and found that it worked better. 
With less side effects, right? With less side effects. Right. So, yeah, when I think people sometimes get very nervous when I prescribe herbs instead of antibiotics and they worry, yeah, is it going to work? Well, actually, we've got both good clinical and Mm -hmm. research evidence that not only do they work as well, but in some cases even better with certainly less side effects. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's, I, I think in the alternative, no, I don't even like to use the word alternative. I think in our world, you know, we know so much about plants and herbs and the background of even where medication pharmaceuticals come from. And so we are much more open to using these, but that I think, I think a lot of the population has the idea that a drug is faster, quicker, safer, and it's uh, going to create lasting results. Whereas they think of an herb, maybe like, you know, eating rosemary out of your backyard and it's not really going to, you know, taste good or it's going to do, but it's not really has, it doesn't have a medicinal benefit. But really, herbs are kind of like food, right? And it's not like you eat – there may be certain foods – well, I guess Americans kind of like we eat under like 30 foods. Like we don't have a very diverse diet really. But if you look at cultures that – even hunter-gatherer diets, it's a very diverse diet and they're eating herbs and roots and fruits and vegetables and meats and things. And so you get more of that array and herbs are a big piece of that. So herbs are really like food. Right. And you get the constituents of it all. Instead of like the statin drug, you get the statin. You don't get everything else that red yeast rice has that makes the statin maybe work at a lower force. It still works. It's just not, you don't have those side effects. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you have to uh, acknowledge that, you know, I mean, for example, Dr. Cowden's herbs uh, that come from the Amazon, these are herbs that have been used by indigenous peoples for millennia. Right. You know, so... The one thing I would argue is that when you've got, you know, cultures that use herbs for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, you know, if something doesn't work, people figure it out. They stop using it. Mm-hmm. The fact that they continue to use it, they use it because it works. So the one thing we always uh, never get in, in drug studies is really long-term data. And with many herbs, we actually have long-term, although not a typical research study, but long-term clinical use where certainly the safety's been evaluated because, you know, people take these herbs and they don't die and they don't get sick. Uh, so I, I think, you know, understanding the cultural background of where these herbs are used, the type of, you know, maladies that they've been used to treat, uh, you know, gives us a pretty good starting point of the clinical benefit of them. Uh, but, you know, as as time has gone on, I think, you know, more and more research keeps coming out on the actual chemical composition of the herbs. We now know that many herbs we use have constituents that are biologically active in whatever, you know, area of the body. And so uh, when I hear, well, there's no research, I'm like, well, you haven't read anything that, because if you actually go and dig, you'll find actually quite a bit of research on most of the herbs that we use medicinally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, um, with with the herbal treatments they're they're in very specific formulations and dosages and right so it's it's like a it's a very dedicated program that you're putting on what is the length of time for treatment per se in an average person what are you looking at like is it is it 10 days or is it six months? What, what would you say is your... Well, for someone with acute Lyme disease, uh, again, I start with at least six weeks of okay. herbal treatment and we just kind of, you know, base it on how someone's feeling. So again, if someone still, like if they tell me, look, I'm feeling better, but I'm not quite uh, feeling completely well, we'll continue on their now regimen. Now, acutely, you'll use the herbs before antibiotics too, right? Yes. 
You yes, will. Absolutely. Okay, for the acute cases. Yeah. And with chronic Lyme, you know, the herbal regimens, I mean, three to six months is very common. Uh, again, sometimes I have people who do stay on longer. Uh, again, we really base it on how somebody's responding to the treatment. And the one thing I like about the herbal protocols, too, is, you know, if you start on a protocol and someone's not responding as well as you'd like, you know, we can change it fairly easily. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of a function of what people can tolerate, what they take. Uh, money, of course, is always an issue, but uh, of course, insurance doesn't pay for any of this. Uh, and some of the herbal protocols are more expensive than others. But uh, we've got a lot of different options, and uh, I've I've found that all of them work for different people, and we just kind of have to find you know what that right combination is for for you. A big question that I got from a number of people who have chronic Lyme is that question of expense, that they are, they've been to 10 different doctors, they've had 10 different expensive treatments, they've even had these IV antibiotics, six months, 12 months, insurance doesn't pay for any of it, they literally have no money left, and they're still sick. Well, the nice thing, I guess, when you compare the cost of herbs relative to IV antibiotics, it's substantially cheaper. But when you've exhausted your financial resources, everything's expensive. But uh, that's where, you know, I'd rather, you know, get people from the get-go on some of the herbal regimens. I mean, you know, doxycycline insurance pays for that, you know, depending on the state you're in, uh, some states like Connecticut are protected. So doctors are actually allowed to prescribe for longer periods and insurance will pay. In other states, you know, you get your 21 days and then you have to fight after that. And certainly IV antibiotics you have to fight for. Uh, So uh, if people are paying out of pocket, especially IV antibiotics, that can get to be very expensive very quickly. But uh, the herbs, you know, I mean, realistically, depending on the protocol, it can run anywhere from $100 to $500 a month, depending on the protocol that you're using. So, you know, my conversation with patients is, you know, we always talk about the budget. And, you know, if we have to start with whatever is going to be the cheapest, even though maybe it's not the most effective or the best, it's, it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, depending on how their resources change, we can always uh, adapt the, the regimen. But uh, uh, I'd like to be very realistic about what people can financially do because often I, I get that situation mm-hmm. where people have been to 10 doctors, exhausted their resources, still desperate for help. And uh, now we're trying something new and it's just another out-of-pocket expense. So, um, it's unfortunate, but, uh, I think when you look at the overall cost of a lot of the type of natural therapies we're doing relative to the more expensive conventional ones, you know, it, it does end up being a little bit cheaper. Right. So what are some of the other foundational pieces that you use? So diet <clears throat> is a big one. Yeah. Um, and the herbs obviously is a found, is a big piece of your treatment as, uh, what, what else are you counseling patients in to do? So, uh, of course, all of the lifestyle things that are important for maintaining, you know, a good immune system and tissue repair. So sleep is one that I find mm-hmm. is really paramount. And most of the Lyme patients I work with complain that they don't sleep well. You know, that's the time when your body really gets to repair itself, restore. And if you're not getting enough hours of sleep and not good quality sleep, it's just hard for your body to heal. So mm-hmm. we talk a lot about, you know, all the things that help promote better sleep pattern. You know, I, I think one of the biggest problems I see now is, you know, crawling in the bed with your iPad or iPhone. And, you know, yeah, we, we now know it. from the, I know I, I'm guilty of it too, but we, we, we we're now seeing in the How research. How about crawling in the bed of the two-year-old who's kicking you in the head all night? Like this week, I've had six to eight hours of sleep a night, some nights more consistent sleep, not woken up by children. 
Wow. What a difference. Your mornings are so different. And think of all the millions of people who go to bed with their iPad, they're co-sleeping with their children, they have to get up early for their jobs, they didn't go to bed early enough, Um, like they're woken up by infants, like I feel like, and then it's just like chronically sleep deprived everybody's like sleep deprived. Yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of a national epidemic, you know, outside of Lyme disease, but, uh, you know, bad sleep, poor sleep is just associated with so many health issues. And you're right between, you know, kids and other external factors, stress, all that feeds into how well you sleep. And, you know, and sleep is actually kind of a very complex process. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of hormones and neurotransmitters involved and you need everything to kind of be in sync to keep your sleep pattern regular. And look, you know, it it takes sometimes many, many months to get people back on a regular sleep pattern. It doesn't happen overnight, but it really takes a commitment of getting yourself on a schedule to promote better sleep and it's so easy for things to derail that and you know the kids are up and i gotta do this and so it's really you know trying to work with people to figure out how we can get a more consistent pattern Uh, and sometimes we do use some nutrients and some herbs to help promote better sleep Uh, but a lot of it i think is is what about sleep apnea sleep apnea so big getting people to Get help with their sleep apnea. Yeah. So, you know, we just have to go through that process. You know, what is it about your sleep that's keeping you from sleeping well? And whether, yeah, sleep apnea or other factors, you know, once you kind of know what the problem is, it's easier to make good recommendations on how to treat it. Uh, But uh, sleep, I see, is one of the biggest things that I think keeps Lyme people from getting well. And so if we can get them on really good sleep. And the second piece of this is really exercise. And I see a lot of Lyme patients, they're so exhausted to the bone. The thought of moving at all is just overwhelming. And it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my philosophy is, you know, move when you can, where you can, how you can. And maybe it's just sitting on the floor stretching. You know, anything that's going to get your blood moving is going to help. A lot of Lyme patients, I can even tell when I draw their blood, their blood tends to come up very thick and viscous, Mm -hmm. which is a sign of inflammation. And so, you know, anything we can do to get that blood so it's not more like water than oil is going to be helpful. So I like really gentle exercises. So yoga or Tai Chi, uh, Pilates, these kind of things can be very gentle, easy, easy to adapt to your uh, your ability. But any kind of movement really, I think, is very beneficial mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, better blood flow, better oxygen, bringing more nutrients to the right tissue. And so, you know, move when you can and where you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. And anything else? Well, yeah, the last thing, you know, that we've been doing uh, the last few years in my practice that I think is very exciting is we've been doing a therapy called low-dose immunotherapy. And low-dose immunotherapy was developed by a medical doctor uh, in Hawaii named Dr. Ty Vincent. And uh, the concept is that it's a way of trying to modulate the immune response to Lyme or any of the co-infections. And it's basically using a homeopathic dilution of the organism that's been killed. Uh, We dilute it out and we mix it with an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. We found that this enzyme actually helped turns off that immune reaction to whatever it's mixed with. Uh, So, you know, we got it for Lyme, we've got it for Candida, we've got it for Strep, we've got it for various organisms. But uh, because of this autoimmune response that gets triggered, I find a lot of people who've been through numerous therapies, antibiotics, herbs, you name it, uh, sometimes they have a very good response to this in a relatively short period of time. 
And what's cool. nice about it too is that the doses are typically given every seven to eight weeks, and it's a fairly inexpensive therapy. So, and is it an oral or is it an injection or? What it's is a it? sublingual. It goes sublingual. under the tongue. So okay. yeah, we actually draw it up in a little syringe. Uh, it's one drop, and you know you just squirt it under the tongue. Hmm. So it's uh, uh, it can be very very powerful for some people. I mean, I've taken it myself and found it made a big difference. Uh, probably. 80% of the people I use it on have a positive response. The challenge with this therapy is the dose at which people respond, the range is really wide. Right. You know, it's kind of like the difference between taking one milligram and 10,000 milligrams. I mean, it's that broad. So often, you know, we have to find the right concentration that really helps you. If the concentration is too strong, it actually can cause a flare. It can cause like a Herx reaction. Okay. And people don't like that. So no. I've kind of learned clinically, I, I tend to start at a very low dilution, very weak, make sure you tolerate it. And then we can kind of work our way up uh, as you tolerate it. That way we can find the right dose that works best for you without pushing you too far that you actually start to flare. But uh, once we find that right dose, again, it's uh, been very helpful for a lot of my Lyme patients. Okay. Cool. And anything else? Probably a lot of stuff. Well, you know, there's a lot of other stuff. You know, we've uh, actually been using another thing called pulsed electromagnetic frequency. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that in your talk yesterday. And I've had a device in my office uh, because I heard a disc in my low back during the birth process. Yeah. And I had low, pretty low, bad, low back pain for the first year after birth. And I uh, ordered this device from Germany. It's a pulse select. It's not a beamer. Not a beamer. It's called an MRS oh, one thousand. Okay. But it was easy because it it's a pad that I can yep. lay on my mm-hmm. massage table. It also has a pillow and like a a probe thing. Yep. And I ordered it. I had to get it out of Canada. It was from Germany, and they were only at the time they're now selling in the states, but they were only selling through Canada. And it's just a device that you lay on it, and the different pads have different frequencies, and it's a pulsed frequency. Mm-hmm. And I started using it. I would um, when I would breastfeed or whatever, I'd lay on the pad with it and then I'd use the probe and specific you can't even feel it nope. you can't feel it at all so most people are like this doesn't even work what is this but the research in Germany and Japan um, mainly Germany and Japan have been using it forever and you know bone healing tissue healing that's what they're using it right. they use it in this country for scar you know for surgery after surgery right. surgery or bone yeah. bone surgeries uh it brings in circulation and so the germans have been using it for years around neurological disease parkinson's disease ms um fatigue kind of these fatigue syndromes and just really what it's doing is it's kind of i just tell people simply cleaning out the bad cells and helping your good cells kind of plump up and work better but it's so subtle and um, you do have to use it more consistently, right? Now, it depends. Some of these ones are stronger. So when you use them, the old ones used to, to sit on this thing and put your feet on the metal pad. Is that yeah. the beamer? No, the you beam- hold this like ball and it goes, <laughs> and you're like, what is this crazy thing? But, but um, and that was the older model, but you could only do that for a couple of minutes. It was so strong. Like you could only handle so much of that. So now they have this really, and it's packable. You can carry it. I used to have a practice in Montana. I used to take it back and forth because then it it helped me so much. I'd use it on my daughter for teething. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, why am I not using this in my clinic with my patients? So I just put it on my table and patients come in and they lay down and I'm doing my other therapies or we're talking and they're just, I have it on yeah. and it's helping them. And some people don't notice it, but some people do. And I, I noticed a lot. So when I saw that you were using PMFT for this, I was like, wow. Yeah, and we've had some again some really good responses. You know, yeah, people don't feel it. Uh, you know, they feel generally very well afterwards, and they feel very relaxed. You know, the whole concept of it is that you're putting in basically uh, an energy that vibrates the same as your own cells. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's really what it's kind of doing. So, and we get exposed to all these different frequencies, radio frequencies, mm -hmm. electromagnetic frequencies that are very different than our own tissue. Mm -hmm. So this is a way of trying to help sort of counter and balance that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what the Germans especially have shown is that it really helps with tissue repair and circulation, mm -hmm. which is very appropriate for Lyme patients. And uh, I mean, we had one woman who came in in a wheelchair. She could walk, but it was very hard. She had one session on on the, the PEMF, and then she got out and walked out on her own. Yeah. So it can be very profound uh, for some people, but I like it because it's non-invasive. It doesn't hurt. Um, and there's actually now, uh, like what the company I work with, they make a personal one. So instead of you having to go to the doctor to have the treatment done, it's a little device that you can program, wear it around your neck or put it in your pocket and just, you know, carry it around with you all day. That's great. And uh, it's yeah, very it's convenient. It's a lot. My, my device is not cheap. So uh, well, the, the personal device that this company makes, I think, is about $1,000. That's so still cheaper than it, It's not I... cheap, but, you know, if it's something where you're going to the doctor for yeah. it's saving you the doctor visits and that kind of thing. And I like the fact, though, that it's programmable. And so you can kind of change the protocols you want to do. And one the reason I like this company is that I can actually write the protocol for my patient, email it to them. They can upload it to their device. And then now we've got them on the right, the right, right. protocol. And I like to do, I like to differentiate between this is like not magnets. People think, oh, is this magnets? This yeah. is not magnets. This is a pulsed frequency. Um, that's, that's, you know, in the device, it's pulsing a frequency that your cells kind of the frequencies are the same and it's helping right. your cells to heal. So it's not using magnets. I think people get kind of weirded out by that. Yeah. Um, that's different. That's different, right? Using yeah. They're, the they're completely different. And yeah, I mean, with PEMF, I think it's hard for people because you don't feel it. Right. It's like, well, what's it really doing? And it's just the nature of the, the signal that's being right. generated. But uh, again, I think if people look in the research, they'll see right. it. it's been well studied, uh, well documented. And again, we've had really good clinical results with it. And the other question I have about, we go going back to the acid base yeah. balance and the alkaline diet. Differentiating between uh, the acid-base balance in the blood and in the tissues, can you is it are those two different things? Is that different? Well, right. they are. I mean, every compartment in the body has a different pH. Right. Uh, the blood pH is very tightly regulated. Right. Uh, I mean, it only varies, you know, about 0.2 in pH and you know, too high, too low, you're dead. So mm -hmm. uh, nothing in an alkaline diet is going to change blood pH. That's not really the purpose. It's really looking more at tissue pH. Uh, and that's a little bit harder to measure. And it was actually very interesting when I wrote the book because there, there's actually very few articles. As long as pH diet's been out there, there's actually only a handful of articles that have really studied it. But in, in those few articles, they were all very positive studies and showed that there was a lot of health benefits to follow. Yeah, you know, I've heard some pH. more conventional people poo-poo the whole alkaline thing. And I think that they're not differentiating for people between blood, blood alkalinity 
tissue alkalinity, of course, you know, if your blood gets too acidic, you're dead. And if it gets too alkaline, you're dead. Like we know that as physicians, right? So we're talking more about that kind of tissue health and just keeping so that you're not getting tons of inflammation and acidic types of things in the tissues, right? right? And differentiating between that. So I think that's maybe even too, where there's just not a lot of, a ton of conventional research done on this because it may be even hard to test. You know, the the parameters seem like it would be more difficult to do. Um, But clinically, we do see improvement when people change their diet to a more alkaline-based, nutrient-rich diet, um, which most of those, like we said, hunter-gatherer diets are more alkaline in general. So um, we see people get better when that happens. So we know that there's a pH change within the cells. Well, I mean, I I think anyone could argue that if you change your diet and you're eating a lot of processed foods and now you're eating, you know, organic healthy foods, you're going to feel better. I mean, I'm sure that's true for everybody. But again, I think when you go back and look at the chemistry, you know, one of the things that happens when you eat a lot of processed foods, again, the byproduct of eating those foods is acid production in the body. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really doing is we're countering that acid buildup because that acid buildup does promote inflammation through more complex biochemical pathways. But I mean, there is a a chemical understanding of why this is happening in the body. But yeah, really, ultimately, we're trying to do is address, you know, that tissue pH, because that's where a lot of the action happens. But yeah, blood pH really doesn't, (laughs) doesn't change. Okay. So besides, you know, talking at events like this, and, and uh, I'm I'm guessing you do tons of public appearances um, within the medical community and outside of the medical, medical community, um, you know, what would you see as the as the greater goal for helping people with Lyme disease in the medical community? You know, what do you think that we can offer that we're not offering? Um, well, you know, my goal in certainly talking to other physicians, other healthcare providers, is really just trying to promote better awareness that Lyme is much more common than you probably were taught, and really educating them on how to you know read labs and understand you know what what are you really diagnosing, and again understanding that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. So you know a negative test does not exclude the possibility of having Lyme disease, and that you kind of have to go through this you know process of you know ruling out other things. But if you've got a patient sitting in front of you that has all these signs and symptoms, and you've ruled everything else out. And there's evidence on paper, especially if there's Lyme exposure, you know, that it's very appropriate to treat. And from the patient standpoint, you know, if you think you might have Lyme and you've been to your doctor and they kind of poo-poo you and, you know, they tested you and you had a negative test and they said, you don't have Lyme, stop worrying about it. You know, you need to get in the hands of someone who understands Lyme. And, uh, you know, there are, you know, fortunately many, many doctors around the country who have a better understanding of Lyme disease and are more likely to get you the right test uh, to at least better help identify if that's what's going on. Now, you obviously can work with anybody anywhere, right? Yeah, I have people come from all over the country, all over the world. So uh, uh, I said I've got offices in Connecticut and California. So so. where in Connecticut are you? I'm in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. So I'm about an hour outside of New York City. Okay. And then where in California? I'm in uh, Orange County, California and Irvine. Okay, nice. So, uh, Darren, what's your what's your website? How so, can people get a hold of you? Sure. So, my uh, website is darreningelsnd.com. That's D A R I N I N G E L S N D and is in Nancy D.com. Okay. And are you part of an association or I know there's like the Elad the Elads Association you talked about others. Are yeah. you a part of a group of doctors um, that is using some of these same therapies that you are or 
are you kind of the... Well, you know, I think a lot of doctors that are treating Lyme, you know, most of the doctors that are, I mean, I'm a member of ILADS as well. Uh, Most of the doctors in that organization probably tend to use antibiotics more than herbal therapy. Uh, There are other members, though, who are using a lot of the same protocols that I'm using. Uh, So certainly through ILADS, you can find a practitioner. You can also find practitioners through the naturopathic organization, Mm -hmm. uh, naturopathic Mm naturopathic.org, to find a naturopath, at least in the United States. Uh, I also, there are a lot of Lyme doctors in the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. And their website is aaemonline.org. So between those three organizations, you can probably find someone in your area who really understands Lyme disease and can really help you get good testing and treatment. Now, we have listeners in Canada. We have listeners in New Zealand. We have listeners in Australia. We probably have a few listeners in Europe. What would you say to the people that are living outside of the States about possibly what either their laws are or even their uh, relationship with Lyme disease would be medically? Well, Australia, for example, I have worked with several Australians and, uh, you know, the Australian government says that Lyme disease doesn't exist. So if you're an Aussie, uh, you're going to have a hard time. Uh, I know several of the Aussies have sent their samples to the United States to get tested. Uh, they get it drawn in Australia, send it to Igenex in California to get the diagnosis. But a lot of the doctors in Australia have been, you know, prosecuted for treating Lyme disease. So depending mm-hmm. on, I guess, what country you're in. In Europe, I know there's a bit of resistance. Uh, Canada, I think, is a lot like the United States. They tend to follow more of the CDC guidelines on Lyme. But there are a lot of Lyme literate doctors in Canada as well. So I think it really is just, you know, search your local community. If you see if you can find someone. And if you can't, uh, there are a lot of doctors like myself that do work remotely. uh, If that's an option for you, it's better to have somebody than nobody. Um, So, But I, I think it's always best if you can find someone in your local area that can help manage you. Okay, so you have a book coming out. Next April? When is your book coming out? Okay. Yeah. So I have a book coming out called The Lime Solution, and okay. it's slated to be released in early April of 2018. Okay. So if you go onto my website and if you sign up for my email list, uh, we are going to send a notice out when the pre-orders are available. And I have not been notified by the publisher yet when that's going to happen. But uh, if you want to sign up, uh, we also have, I have a free ebook that you can download on some of my favorite immune boosting recipes. Uh, but if you get on our list, then uh, we'll make sure to send an announcement out when the book's uh, ready for pre-order. Okay. Well, is there anything you want to add that I didn't ask? Well, I just uh, I, yeah. I just want to sort of encourage people out there who've been dealing with this, or again, if they've been struggling with these issues and they haven't had a definitive diagnosis, you know, you kind of have to be the squeaky wheel. And I know a lot of people who live in areas where they get a lot of resistance from their local doctor and practitioner, and they're just desperate to find answers. Uh, I mean, I just met with a woman in Florida because she lives in Florida that's not known to be an endemic area, and she's a healthcare provider, Mm -hmm. and she couldn't get anybody to help her. So sure enough, I ran a test. I sent a test kit down to her, her local doctor drew her. She tested positive, I mean, CDC positive to Lyme. She also has Babesia and Bartonella. And I'm like, well, this is why you feel terrible. And she just couldn't get anybody to help her. So be the squeaky wheel and keep finding people who will help you because, you know, the sooner you can get on any treatment, you know, the better you're going to feel. Right. And for those of you who do not have Lyme disease, take precautions. Yes, absolutely. You know, protect yourself, protect your family, check your dogs, check your children when they're outside, especially if you're in areas where you're concerned about ticks. And uh, a little prevention goes a long way. Right. 
That's the basis of our medicine, isn't it? I think so. Prevention. <laughs> Prevention. So, Darren, I thank you for doing this for us. I think this is going to give us um, – our listeners just went crazy when we said we were going to talk Lyme disease. So uh, we may have some questions come up in the future. So who knows? Maybe we'll have you on again. But Wonderful. Uh, I appreciate you doing this for us. And anybody out there, if you want to get uh, – you want to get more uh, information about what's going on with you or you just have questions or you want to work with a doctor like Dr. Ingalls, please get a hold of him and, and let him see what he can do for you. So, cool. Okay. Have a great rest of the convention. All right. Great. Thanks, okay. Hillary. Thanks. Okay. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to the Hunt Harvest Health podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit our website at huntharvesthealth.com for more podcast stories and recipes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hunt Harvest Health. You can also message me at stahealthyhunter, that's S-T-H, and I will be more than happy to answer any questions you might have. Also tag your photos, Hunt Harvest Health, or Get Stealthy, as we enjoy seeing what you guys are doing as well.